This is Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live from home via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court will hear a Republican-led redistricting lawsuit. By a narrow margin, the state Supreme Court agreed to take the case brought by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. The decision to hear the case was split along partisan lines, with the four conservative justices deciding to hear the case and the three liberal justices dissenting. The move is a blow to state Democrats who have a redistricting lawsuit in progress in federal court. In 1982, 1992, and 2002, redistricting lawsuits ended up in federal court, reports the Associated Press. Wisconsin's current maps were drawn by Republicans in 2011 during Scott Walker's administration. A lawsuit over redistricting the last time ended up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court and was heard at the U.S. Supreme Court, which did not issue an opinion on the case. A Republican state senator who was hospitalized with COVID-19 a month ago has been transferred to a care facility. André Jacques, a Republican of De Pere, was placed on a ventilator a month ago after falling ill with COVID-19-induced pneumonia. Now Jacques is heading to a care facility to recover through additional occupational therapy, a spokesperson for his office told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Jacques was a critic of mask mandates and vaccine requirements before he was hospitalized. Earlier this week, another prominent state Republican, Rebecca Clayfish, tested positive for COVID-19. Clayfish launched her 2022 campaign for governor earlier this month. The city of Madison will be accepting roughly $6.1 million in additional rental relief aid. The Common Council voted to accept the funds during its meeting yesterday. The Capital Times reports that, all told, Madison has received a total of $39.1 million in rental relief aid since the pandemic began. Meanwhile, local social justice organization Urban Triage is poised to take over portions of Dane County's rental aid program. Beginning next month, the nonprofit will begin offering drop-in services at 2312 South Park Street and services by phone via a call center. Those resources are available for all county residents who live outside the city of Madison. Residents of Madison will need to take their rental aid issues and questions to the Community Action Coalition. The Verge reports that the electric vehicle startup Workhorse has dropped its legal complaint against the U.S. Postal Service and Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense. Workhorse willingly abandoned its challenge last Tuesday. The original suit argued that the federal agency improperly handled a competition to design the next fleet of Postal Service vehicles. That contract was awarded to Oshkosh earlier this year. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers via the state's Department of Health Services. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 2,857 cases per day. As of yesterday, the state's moving average of hospitalized COVID patients was 1,079. 89.7% of the state's hospital beds are currently in use. Despite those numbers, state health officials warn that Wisconsin's COVID-19 surge hasn't peaked yet. 
DHS, uh, Health Services Secretary Karen Timberlake told reporters today that, quote, we are not at a plateau yet. We are not at a leveling off. We are still seeing a concerning rate of growth, unquote. And that's it for the headlines. Before we turn to more local news, we have a special guest in the studio who wants to tell you something about the WORT Fall Pledge Drive. Her voice might sound familiar. Take it away, Jade Isiri Ramos. Thank you so much, Vicki. Yeah, I am a reporter here on the Wednesday News. Uh, you're going to actually hear my voice after you hear my voice, which is pretty exciting. Um, but the stuff that we do here at WORT, the reporting, uh, the interviews, that isn't possible without you. So if you want to make a, a donation during this time, you can call 608-256-2001. You can also go online. That's wortfm.org and make your pledge there. Uh, WORT is where I turn to to find out what's happening in Madison, what's happening around uh, the world, well, around Madison, I guess, on the Isthmus and around the Isthmus. Um, and it's also where I turn when I want to just listen to the voices of our community. Um, I know that it's not just I'm reading a piece of paper. I'm actually hearing uh, the voices. You can call 608-256-2001. I've got some pledge uh, answers or some phone answers waiting for you. Uh, or wortfm.org. All of Madison's Alder districts need to have roughly the same population size. City staff and the redistricting committee, armed with new census data, are trying to make that happen. But one Alder is concerned that the proposed changes will crack the vote of UW-Madison students. For more, we turn to WORT reporter Jade Isiri Ramos. The 8th Alder District houses many UW-Madison students in the heart of downtown. Under the two proposed redistricting maps, a large section of that district would be absorbed by the surrounding districts. Juliana Bennett, the district's current alder, says she's concerned that the changes will dilute the voice of UW students. It is extremely vital to keep um, students together and within one district because we understand each other. We take care of each other. Like when one student faces a campus-related issue, it's something that a majority of us face at the same time. An interactive map with the current district census data and two proposed concepts are on the city's website. In response to the concepts, Bennett suggests all student dorms as well as the Spring Street and College Court area remain in her district. Bennett says college students and their needs should be one of the staff's top priorities. I've gone over the maps myself and my former District 8 alders and with the downtown alders and um, I've made suggestions to staff as to how we can um, change the maps around to best meet um, the concerns of like the downtown area. Um, and those concerns need to be taken into consideration when they make the map. It's not about if it can be done, because it can be done. It's about if staff and redistricting will do it. City planner Ben Zeller says proposed changes to District 12 are a result of a population increase in all the districts on the Isthmus. Um, I think really ultimately we'll end up with still a 
a very uh, solidly student-oriented uh, district, perhaps more than one, um, although it might not take the same uh, exact form as it does right now with District 8 because of um, the population growth that has occurred there and elsewhere around campus. We may or not, may not be able to accommodate um, as part of these concepts, uh, for example, including all of the UW dorms within a single Alder District just because they're they're spread around uh, the campus and they tend to generate very high population numbers. The city is aiming to even out current aldermatic districts with a new district representing about 13,700 people. That number comes from the 2020 census. Currently, districts range between about 7,000 residents. Public comment is being considered by email, that's redistricting at cityofmadison.com, or by filling out a comment card at any of Madison's public libraries by Tuesday. A public information session is happening now on Zoom. Redistricting Committee Chair Justice Castaneda calls public input really important. So there's been a lot of really spirited conversations and, and points that have been made, um, however we feel about them, about the downtown districts, about District 14, about the annexation, about what happens when we shift uh, 18 and 12, what happened, you know, like all the things that kind of been brought up. And I think it's really important, you know, to the degree that we're able that we get as much input, as much uh, feedback from the people who live here as possible. The city's redistricting process should be completed by early November. Those plans will then head to the Dane County Board to adopt a district plan for its Board of Supervisors. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jada Siri Ramos. Yesterday, Madison's Common Council approved a measure to match pay raises between the city's union and non-union employees. Since Act 10, pay raises for the city's general employees have lagged behind their police and fire counterparts. Our producer, Jonah Chester, fills us in on the details. 1,400 Madison General Municipal employees are lagging behind fire and police employees in wage increases. Yesterday, Madison's Common Council passed a resolution to close that gap. The measure, which passed 19 to 1 with Alder Keith Furman as the lone holdout, will match general municipal employees' pay increase schedule with protective service employees by January 2024. That will be achieved through a cumulative 6% salary raise over the next two years. Alder Furman raised concerns that the measure doesn't specifically call for a modification to the city's budget to allow for the increases. Madison is poised to begin its 2022 budget negotiations in the next few weeks. Okay, so yeah, so if we pass, so, so I'm clear, so if we pass this and we can't afford it, um, then in the budget, then we've, you know, passed a resolution that made us feel good, but, you know, it ends up being what it is. The process will kick off with a 1% raise this coming January. City general employees can expect additional increases in January and July of 2023 and January 2024. If protective services employees receive a pay raise higher than general municipal employees before 2025, that raise will also be extended to general municipal employees. Dan Rolfs is a member of the Madison Professional and Supervisory Employees Association, which advocates for City of Madison employees. Rolfs, who also works in the city's Office of Real Estate Services, says morale among Madison's employees is low, and a pay raise would likely go a ways towards increasing that morale. Employee morale is um, not where it should be. The nice way to describe it is in the Lord of the Rings, they ask uh, Bilbo how he feels at the end of his life. I feel thin, 
sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. Uh, that's probably a reasonable description for an awful lot of staff. Uh, there's just there, there's too much toast and not enough butter. And you try to spread your time around and to cover all of the items that you need to cover. In the wake of 2011's Act 10, public sector unions had their collective bargaining rights gutted. The law largely left those rights intact for police and fire employees, hence the pay raise discrepancy. Also affected by Act 10, nurses at UW Health Hospital. In 2014, those nurses lost their union when their contract expired. UW Hospital administrators hold that Act 10 bars them from negotiating a new contract. But at their meeting yesterday, Madison's alders rejected that argument. The city council voted unanimously to support holding a new union election at the hospital. Aaron Singer, a registered nurse at UW Health, says that the hospital's administrators have taken an increasingly top-down approach to management in recent years. When UW nurses had our union, there was true, true collaboration between us and management, and we were part of the real decision-making process. Since then, the collaborative environment has completely gone away, and UW is run in a totally top-down manner. All decisions are made by those in the executive suite without any input of those at the bedside and the front lines. Amanda Klinge, another UW Health nurse, says that top-down management approach has exacerbated staffing shortages at the hospital. A May 2020 report by Wisconsin's Department of Workforce Development finds that the state as a whole will likely be short roughly 10,000 nurses by 2030. Understaffing has been a dire problem for years, and the pandemic has transformed this issue into a full-blown crisis. It seems like they use business models to determine how to deploy resources, such as staffing in the hospital. Also last night, the council voted to push ahead with two proposals to establish temporary homeless shelters on Bartillon Drive and Zaire Road. The purchase of those properties wasn't finalized, but was referred out to city committees for consideration. Notably, the Zaire Road location is the exact site the city proposed for a permanent men's homeless shelter earlier this year. That proposal was shot down after area residents and business owners strongly opposed the project. The new resolution lists the Zaire Road property as a, quote, long-term site for redevelopment, unquote, after its use as a temporary homeless shelter has ended. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Hey, uh, we are uh, back at the station. We're pledge wrapping. Uh, I have great news for everyone. That is a new donor, uh, Anonymous from Madison, likes Back to the Country, Worldview, and of course, all the news and public affairs here at WORT, which is, don't tell anyone, my favorite shows as well. Uh Thank you so much, Anonymous. You are making the news happen. If you are out there and you want to make a pledge, the phone number here is 608-256-2001, extension 1. That gets you straight to our uh, phone answers who are waiting for you. You can also go online, 608. I mean, sorry, that's wortfm.org. It's a huge help. You make the news happen. You get us on the airwaves, you get us on the website, you get us on the app. That's a huge thing that you um, donors have helped us pay for this year. Uh, the app's huge for me. I listen to it almost all the time. Um, I also sometimes hook it up to my Bluetooth uh, speaker because it works better than the radio most times. 
uh, 608-256-2001. It's now 6.22 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, uh, we, we want to check back in with Jade. And uh, Hey, Vicki. We did. <laughs> How are you? We got, good. It's good to hear from you. I'm uh, sorry you're at home, but I am glad to be uh, connected over the airways. Oh, me too. Me too. This is still a lot of fun. I uh, I miss seeing you guys in the studio, and I I do when I can. Great. All right. Let's hear about this next story. I'm really actually quite excited about it. Excellent. So, up next we have an interview. A Madison Alder is proposing a new policy that would prohibit cat declawing within city limits. The measure would insert a clause into the city's ordinances barring the practice. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Lindsay Lemmer, the proposal's lead author and sponsor. Tell me a little bit about your inspiration for this proposal. Why, why are you floating this new ordinance? Yes. Uh, thank you so much for asking. Um, cat decline is inhumane. I think it is unnecessary and it's becoming increasingly outdated and, and archaic, I feel. Decline is actually a multiple amputations on a cat. It's comparable to the removal of human fingertips at their first knuckle. It's actually amputation of the last bone of each of the cat's toes. Yeah, it can cause you know not just Short-term pain, but long-term pain, it causes you know, nerve damage often, and you know, the, the procedure can hamper you know, their, their daily routines, uh, can make walking and climbing painful. And so, to me, it's, it's inhumane. I think it's also cruel. And there are other alternatives. And you know, additionally, you know, folks choose to declaw cats to prevent problematic scratching behavior, which can cause, you know, furniture and home damage. Uh, and decline a cat can actually lead to problematic behavior. It often leads to litter box avoidance because it's, it's painful for them to walk into their little litter box, sometimes as a result of, of being declawed. And I can promise you that that is going to cause more damage to one's home. Yeah, and it can also cause other problematic behaviors, including increased biting and nipping, um, because once you've removed their claws, you've taken away their primary means of defense, and they can react to that with increased insecurity. And so I just I felt like it was time to to do this. I think the tide has changed as far as how the public feels about decline. I think the word has gotten out that it is an inhumane procedure and there are alternatives. I trim my cat's nails and scratching can be redirected to scratching outlets, cat trees, cat posts, nail caps are very common. So there are other things that can be done to prevent problematic scratching. So I felt like it was time to introduce something like this. And Banning cat decline is also not a new idea. European countries have banned cat decline for a long time. In Canada, seven out of ten of their provinces have banned decline. Uh, Here in the U.S., New York State recently banned decline. It's also banned in Austin, Texas, Denver, Colorado, and in a number of municipalities in California. 
Now, in terms of penalties for violating this proposal, would those primarily be targeted at the, the vets administering the declawing or would that be targeted at the, at the cat's owners? Yeah, great question. It, they would be at the uh, vets. There are a couple key things to keep in mind. One, when I was discussing you know, introducing this ordinance with uh, staff, uh, there was a, a very serious concern expressed that something like this would be detrimental to vet clinics. So we reached out to vet clinics and surveyed their number, and the feedback was surprisingly good. Most said that this kind of ban would not be a problem. Some said that they would be supportive of such a ban, and almost all of them said that they already do not do uh, decline procedures except when medically necessary. And this ordinance has a carve-out for when it is a medically necessary procedure. Do you know what the monetary fine would be? Yeah, so any person violating this would be subject to a forfeiture of up to $2,000. So you, you mentioned something a minute there ago about the survey you undertook. And I believe that was with Public Health Madison, Dane County, who oversees a lot of animal mm-hmm. control operations for you know Madison and Dane County. Walk me through that a little bit more. What was the data gathering process for this proposal like? Yeah, well, it was informal. Uh, they you know, reached out to um, vet clinics that they were regularly in touch with obviously as part of their work they are in regular conversation with veterinary clinics so they they pulled a number of them that they work with i talked to a few myself and and this was the, the trend in the feedback that we received so this this proposal places the duty on Public Health Madison Dane County, which, like I said, runs a lot of animal control operations here locally, to enforce this measure. Now, does the proposal create any kind of new position, or would in your discussions with PHMDC have they basically told you, you know, enforcing this wouldn't be a huge strain on our existing resources? Yeah, that is a great question. They, you know, based on the feedback that we got from vet clinics, they feel that this. I don't want to speak for them, but I think that provided some level of comfort. The fact that the feedback was generally like positive about this, I think reduced the, the concern that this would, would create a challenge for them. Uh, Lindsay, thanks so much for, for coming on the show and talking with me today. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd, uh, you'd like folks to know about this proposal? Um, where it's heading next, I guess, if folks want to offer public input, where can they do that? Or anything else you feel deserves airtime? Yeah, absolutely. So this will be at uh, the Board of Public Health. I don't have the exact date when it will be there. It would either be October or November, and I will be sharing that information, and that will be posted on uh, the city and county websites when it's available. And then this will be coming back to the council probably in late October or in November after we get the recommendation from the Board of Health. All right, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Lindsay Lemmer is a City of Madison alder representing portions of Madison's east side. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We take a deep dive into Madison's trash and revisit the time Muhammad Ali came to town on Madison in the 60s. 
But now we'll check in with Jedi Siri Ramos once again. Then we'll hear some news from around the world. Back in a flash. We got a pl- we have a pledge. Woo! <laughs> Uh, we have an anonymous pledge, which I am really thankful for. Uh, they like local news. They say it's superb, the best in the area, and Mel and Floyd, which is a pretty good show here on WORT. 608-256-2001, extension 1. You can also go online. That's WORT 89.9. Oh, wait. <laughs> WORTFM.org. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you for joining us tonight. Have you ever wondered what happens to your trash? Where does it go once it leaves our home, and where does it end its life cycle? The Dane County Landfill is a sprawling facility with many dedicated ways of handling trash. But the landfill is nearing the end of its life, and it's time to find a new one. Reporter Nate Carlin has the story. Every day in Madison, about 300 trucks and cars drop off 1,000 tons of trash at the Dane County Landfill on Route 12, just on the other side of the interstate from Madison. They come from towns and cities in the county, from local businesses and private individuals, and they drop off their waste here at the 120-acre landfill for waste disposal. Landfill Director John Welch describes the site. You can see here it's a very busy place. Um, we get anywhere from 300 to 400 customers a day in an eight-hour day, so it's very, very busy. Um, we are a government agency, but we what's called an enterprise fund, which means we run a lot like a small business. So we, we do not use any taxpayer dollars, and we never have in our 30-plus years of existence. All of these customers coming across the scale pay us to take their waste or to take their materials. Dane County's landfill is owned by the county, and anyone can come and drop off their waste here. Trucks are weighed entering the facility, then weighed leaving, and are charged by the difference in weight. Some are huge semis packed to the gills with municipal waste. Others are small vans dropping off trash from small businesses, but the process is the same. First, there are a few things that can't be landfilled that need to be sorted out. Tires and shingles are gathered in huge piles near the entrance. Welch explains that they can jeopardize a landfill's health. Uh, In that event that I told you about, we have a hailstorm. Well, for three months, we get shingles, shingles, shingles. And it can actually cause problems in landfills where it can almost create like a roof inside the waste and then liquid's coming down and it, it won't go down anymore. It hits that, that layer and it, it wants to travel out to the side slopes and it could lead to you know le- leaks out the side slopes or difficulties managing that. Uh, tires, they're very difficult to work with in a landfill. Anything that's made out of rubber um, works its way to the top. It keeps working its way to the top of the waste. So we have large equipment that is compacting the waste and it is also vibrating to add to that. And as it vibrates, rubber keeps moving and working its way back to the top. As an added bonus, both shingles and tires can be recycled and reused. Next comes what the landfill calls the clean sweep. This includes chemicals, electronics, paints, and solvents, which are handled in a separate building. Kevin Bellida, a hazardous waste coordinator for the landfill, explains how they handle acids and other dangerous materials. So we get a lot of flammable liquids, bad gas, uh, oil-based paint, that ultimately all gets either poured in a drum here or sent off in a box. Uh, Veolia's our hazardous waste disposal contractor. So they bulk it all into a larger tank and ultimately it gets burned as an alternative fuel. The flammable liquids get reused and recycled. Um, same with the used oil, antifreeze, 
Uh, aerosol cans get crushed, punctured, same thing that's used as a fuel. Poison liquids, poison solids ultimately go for incineration. Acids and bases, they get um, neutralized. And let's see, the stuff like the oxidizers and the, uh, the more interesting lab-grade type chemicals, uh, those ultimately go for incineration as well. The facility is designed to be safe even though lots of dangerous materials are present. The light fixtures are special no-spark lights. There are multiple fume hoods and ventilation fans. In case of an explosion, an entire portion of the wall is thin metal designed to blow out and relieve the force of explosive air to minimize damage. Electronics are bundled together and sent to an e-recycling facility. As part of the clean sweep, any container that is more than half full is offered free of charge to anyone who wants to come pick it up. The large room held a number of household cleaners as well as large amounts of paint for anyone who needs it. Next to the clean sweep building is a building for construction and demolition waste, which is quite different than municipal waste. Typically concrete, wood, metal, drywall, and brick. According to the estimates from the EPA, there's nearly twice as much construction and demolition waste by weight than municipal waste, and almost all of that material can be recycled. The EPA estimates nearly 75% of all demolition waste is recycled, as opposed to only 20% of municipal waste. Part of that recycling happens at the Dane County Landfill. Large bulldozers push trash onto a conveyor belt on the second floor. Workers push the waste into dedicated holes near the belt, dropping the waste down into large piles on the ground floor, where they are picked up and taken to dedicated recycling facilities. So all those dumpsters of C&D material from job sites, construction sites, it comes in here totally commingled. There's a bunch of equipment, mechanical separation of that material, basically breaking it down by size. And then you'll see in here there's a couple of conveyor belts, pick lines, where there's workers grabbing materials. So as the as material's going by in a conveyor belt, you might be grabbing wood, one grade of wood, and I might be grabbing metal. And we're dropping it through a hole in the ground or through a bunker. And underneath, there's like a small garage, and you end up with clean metal in one garage, clean wood in another garage, rocks, bricks, and aggregate in another. The building is a collaborative project between the landfill and Lakeshore Recycling, a private recycling company. The company finds buyers for the materials, while the landfill provides a useful dropping-off site. Capitalize, it's a great public-private partnership. We're trying to capitalize on each other's strengths. Dane County, we have this existing facility and infrastructure here. We have a customer base that's used to coming into us and across our scales. Um, we have you know, relatively low financing with, with bonding for this facility. Um, Lakeshore Recycling, um, you know, they're, they're really able to manage staff and manage the materials on the back end. So markets shift a lot. If the price of wood drops in half next month, they can much more quickly adjust and adapt to that, uh, put in more R&D into what other products can we develop with this wood now. Can we build a new customer base with farmers for animal bedding rather than using it all for landscape mounts? And that's a true example that happened five, six years ago. The largest part of the landfill site is, of course, the landfill itself. The hill of trash rises 110 feet high, about 10 stories, and is capped with a mixture of grasses designed to simulate local prairie. Near the facility, the hill looks almost like any other hill in southern Wisconsin, except it rises steadily and unnaturally high. About a five-minute drive around the facility, though, and you're at the part of the landfill in use. The landfill is utilized in 12-acre increments called cells. Preparing a cell is an arduous process. There's a lot of layers that go into building this liner to make sure we're protecting the environment, protecting groundwater underneath the landfill. So there's an underdrain system to make sure groundwater doesn't get up and erode the liner from the bottom. Then there's four feet of compacted clay. That goes in in um, actually eight different lifts. And with each lift, 
the compactor spikes have to be longer than the lift, so it's kneading that lift into the lift below it. And then the one above it gets kneaded into that. So you end up with 12 acres wide, four foot thick of compacted clay. Once that's all done, then we actually put on uh, the geomembrane layer, which is a really, really thick plastic. It's a 60 mil HDPE, high density polyethylene. It's about, um, about an eighth of an inch thick plastic roll. It's rolled out across this entire area. After that's done, there's a, there's a kind of like a, a really thin fabric sheet that's rolled out across this to protect that liner. And then you see here, it's all stone. So the final layer that goes into that liner is this one foot thick layer of drainage stone. Once a cell is ready, trash is distributed evenly across the whole thing at around two feet of height. This is the last opportunity to find things that shouldn't belong in the landfill, mostly tires and shingles at this point. Large semis drive the trash from the drop-off stations out to the field, where they dump their load and bulldozers distribute it. After the layering is finished for the day, the trash is covered up with a layer of dirt to help with odors and keep out pests. After two feet of trash is distributed across the whole thing, the process begins again, slowly building up a hill that will tower over the landscape. A new cell just opened at the Dane County landfill, and it should take about six years to fill up. On the ground layer, the trash is not compacted. There's a danger that the process could damage the liner, but later layers will be compressed. A huge truck designed for this task will drive out over the whole layer, crushing everything under its weight and vibrating the whole thing with large spikes to help the trash settle. This is the last cell available to the Dane County landfill. It is the farthest corner of the facility and there's no more room to grow. The landfill is hoping for a height extension that could add another three years of use. But nine years from now, the landfill will be full and Dane County will have to open a new site. Without that vertical expansion, we have about six years of site life left here at this site. With that vertical expansion, we have about nine years. Uh, after that, we see no ability to expand any further at this site. We're kind of landlocked by roads and wetlands and other things. Um, so we need to start looking for a new site. The rule of thumb in Wisconsin is that it takes 10 years to site a new landfill site. So we need to be working on that very quickly. If you look closely at the Dane County landfill, you can see small clusters of pipes that emerge from the hill at regular intervals. At this landfill, they mine the methane that the organic waste produces. The entire landfill is kept slightly pressure negative, and the pipes suck up the produced gases like a network of carefully calibrated straws. Organic waste is the largest share of waste at the landfill by weight, making up nearly a third of all the waste landfilled there. And as that waste decomposes, it releases greenhouse gases, a mixture of carbon dioxide and methane, with some other trace gases. Methane is an even more potent greenhouse gas, but unlike carbon dioxide, it is also valuable. Methane is the main component of natural gas and can be used as a biofuel. For a while, the Dane County landfill burned its methane to generate electricity, but now it refines it into a liquid fuel that can be used as vehicle fuel. So what we're doing now is we're collecting all that gas, about 1,800 uh, standard cubic feet of gas every single minute, and it's about 55% methane, so we need to pull out all those other things and get it up to 97% methane. We can then inject it into the pipeline. We can use that pipeline to transport it to CNG fueling stations. Now we've shown that our landfill gas is going to vehicle fuel and then we can get credits through the, the EPA program. We're producing about a little over 3 million gallons of vehicle fuel every single year off of garbage gas. For the landfill, the sale of its methane is a large source of its revenue. The landfill is profitable and makes money for the county. The sale of biogas accounts for about $12 million of revenue per year and the landfill makes money two ways from its sale first from the sale of the gas itself, and then again by selling the green energy credits to heavier polluters to offset their pollution. The whole project required installing a natural gas injector at the landfill, which hooks the site up with the National Pipeline Network. 
This allows the landfill to offer a unique service. Agricultural digesters that process cow manure can drop off their own biogas, and the landfill processes their biogas for a share of the sale. This has led to a proliferation of agricultural manure digesters in southern Wisconsin, and now the methane from cow manure is captured instead of being pumped into the atmosphere. Landfills will continue to produce methane long after trash is deposited, upwards of 25 years. The designs of landfills have come a long way. 30 years ago, waste management was characterized by dumps, glorified large holes where trash was unceremoniously buried. Now linings and caps eliminate leaching and odor, and recycling and hazardous waste capture are part of the process. But there's still more to be done. Organic waste management could still be approved upon. A dedicated anaerobic digester could capture an even larger portion of methane and greatly extend landfill lifespans by reducing the amount of material that needs to be landfilled. Currently, the Madison City Council is considering building a dedicated digester, but the project is still in its infancy. And finding a way to sustainably dispose of plastics has possible solutions as well. As we're looking for our new landfill site, we're really not just looking for a landfill. We want a sustainable uh, campus. So... We want something that's going to be diverting additional waste streams to other ends. So one example of that is uh, plastics pyrolysis. So it's similar to incineration, but it's actually um, happening in an, in an environment with the absence of oxygen. So really what's happening is you're breaking plastics down to their chemical components and then realigning those chemicals into new products. But until then, the landfill will continue to grow. The makeup of the trash here is telling. Almost a fifth of what gets deposited here is recyclable material, mostly paper and some plastics. Another fifth is wasted food that was once edible. You know, and that's a huge problem. How do we change that paradigm? You know, food waste, they say at least a third of all, all food is thrown away. So that's a lot of wasted resources. The water, the fuel for the tractors, the, to transport it to different facilities, to get it to your home, to refrigerate it, and then it's thrown away. It's a huge environmental impact. And then once it's thrown away, it, it produces gas emissions here at a landfill, right? Next for this landfill will come the long period of waiting. The trash will continue to settle, and the hill will slowly sink. Already, the older parts of the landfill have lost 15 feet of height. Grass will be introduced to the top, but nothing with deeper roots that could pierce the lining can be allowed to grow. Older landfills, like at Elver Park or near the Alliance Center, were repurposed into dog parks or soccer fields. But nowadays, they pile the trash up too high for human use, so the only outlet for the Dane County landfill is Nature Preserve. So we're responsible for maintaining this uh, in perpetuity. Um, for us specifically, we have an agreement with the town of Cottage Grove, which is across the road there, and the city of Madison, that anything that's not buildings and roads already today will be conservatory. Um, so you'll see a lot more settlement, continued settlement. We have to continue to maintain the cap, um, protect the area, uh, prevent any type of environmental uh, releases. But eventually you'll have the gas production drop off, um, you'll have even liquids collection dropping off because there's no more degradation going on and it becomes basically a, a stable hill. Reporting for WORT News, this is Nate Carlin. It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Jade Isiri Ramos, who wants to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. Yeah, we are in the middle of our fall pledge drive. And where else but WORT do you get to get transported in a trash truck to a landfill? It's pretty cool. Nate, you did a great job with that story, and I really enjoyed listening to it. Uh, if you love WORT, you love the local news, you love the stories and, and the scenes we bring you here on your 6 o'clock news, you can support us at 608 256 2001 extension 1. 
We've got some phone answers waiting for you. You can also go online, that's wortfm.org, and pledge there. Uh, One of our earlier pledgers, she got a um, year subscription to the Progressive Magazine, which is a great option we're offering at this time. If you really love the news, uh, why not more news? Uh, 608-256-2001, and you can also go online. We've got lots of great things going on here. Um, you are supporting the board, you're supporting our, our computers, you're supporting everything physically in the station, as well as, um, you know, our website and our app and uh, the other ways that you're connecting to us are us being over the air. We couldn't do that without you. So if you support the local news, now's the time to call 608-256-2001. As the eight-hour Ken Burns interpretation of Muhammad Ali's life on public television ends, Stu Levitan takes a look back at the three times Ali came to town in this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, Muhammad Ali. He was still Cassius Clay when he came to Madison in April 1959 to box at the UW Fieldhouse in the elimination trials for the Pan American Games. Just 17 years old, he was already showing great promise, winning light heavyweight titles in the Golden Gloves and the Amateur Athletic Union. Legendary State Journal sports columnist Roundy Coughlin gave an assessment more attuned to athleticism than punctuation. Clay is a good hard puncher, especially with his right hand. He needs a lot of defense coaching yet, he wrote. Clay is a good kid, regular guy. I would like to see go long ways. When Clay gets better on defense, brother, he will be hard to beat. But Clay was lackluster in the first round of his semifinal fight against Leroy Bogar of Minneapolis and looked headed for his first defeat in 36 bouts. This changed with shocking speed, State Journal Sports editor Henry J. McCormick wrote, as Clay knocked Bogart to the canvas in the second round and then unleashed a flashing combination that almost put him through the ropes and sent Clay into the finals against a 25-year-old Marine named Amos Johnson. 5,000 fans were on hand on April 30 as Clay faced the Southpaw Leatherneck who confused him with lefts to the face and won a split decision. It was the only loss the younger man would suffer as Cassius Clay. A year later, he would win the light heavyweight gold medal at the Rome Olympics and in 1964 shocked the world twice. First by taking the heavyweight title from Sonny Liston, then by changing his name to Muhammad Ali. After leaving the Fieldhouse in Madison in 1959, he would not lose again until he faced Joe Frazier in Madison Square Garden in 1971. The teenage Clay was also showing the charisma that would charm most, but not all, of the world in the decades to come. Stopping in at Badger Sporting Goods on State Street, he so captivated the staff they gifted him with a new pair of athletic shoes. It was a much different Muhammad Ali who returned to Madison on April 26, 1968, 
three days short of a year since he had refused induction into the United States Army and was stripped of his title, and ten months since he was convicted of draft evasion and sentenced to five years in prison. Now, as his conviction was on appeal, the champ is headlining the International Students Against War, Racism, and the Draft at the Stock Pavilion. But he only wants to talk about one of those things. I'm not promoting anything anti-draft, and I'm not here to talk about the war, he says. I'm here on behalf of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to present the black Muslim solution to racism. We must follow a man with a solid foundation, and Elijah Muhammad is the only one with a solution to the race problem, which is worse than the Vietnam War, he says. We have all types of problems, but the one I'm concerned with is the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality for 22 million black people. At first, Ali dominates the stage, just as he did the ring. The crowd chuckles when he says he doesn't have, quote, the complexion or the connection to talk about his conviction while it was under appeal. And they roar when he sets forth what he calls the Black Muslim Economic Program. We don't want no pie in the sky when we die, he says. We want something sound on the ground while we're still around. We're not fighting to be equal with the white man. We're fighting to be equal with the white man's dollar. Ali's message, freedom for all black men and women, is unambiguous. We believe the offer of integration is hypocritical and is made by those trying to deceive people into believing that the enemies of freedom and justice are their friends, he says. The time in history has arrived for a separation between blacks and whites. We want black people to have a separate society of their own, a separate country here or elsewhere, and the land must be rich. Our contribution to this land justifies our demand for a complete separation. He calls on the government to provide free textbooks, schools, and college buildings staffed by black teachers, and to exempt all blacks from taxation until there is full equality. And he decries how the imposition of white culture has made blacks socially, morally, and financially dead. We were robbed of knowledge of ourselves, he says. Ali emphatically rejects violence as a means of achieving a black state. It's like a bull running down a railroad track headed into a locomotive train, he says. All the bull will leave is a monument of flesh and blood on the track. Besides, he said, in order for riots to be successful, blacks would have to obtain superior weaponry, but the guns are controlled by whites. We look like fools being violent, he says. Ali's support for separatism doesn't go over well with the largely white, civil rights-supporting student crowd. Many grumble and even boo when he declares, quote, intermarriage and race mixing should be prohibited. An undercover Madison police officer tracking Ali on special assignment is not impressed. Much of Ali's speech was repetitious and not particularly revealing, he reports in a confidential filing filled with misspellings, even including botched versions of the names Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay. Many times Ali was hissed by the audience, and in fielding questions he often showed a very infantile mentality, the officer reports. The undercover officer adds he's, quote, certain that a large number were there only to hear the great boxer, not the Muslim preacher. This because I recognized a number of students who I know to be non-radical.
In the years to come, Ali would become beloved by radicals and non-radicals alike, as he won his appeal, then regained, lost, and regained his title yet again. He made one final visit to Madison in October 1995 to sign autographs and hand out Muslim literature. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT Community Radio News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6, at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday evenings. Your reporters tonight were Jade Isiri Ramos and Nate Carlin. Your feature contributor was Stu Levitan. Rob's weather report and Downtown Abbey will be back next week. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Ken Brady got us on the air, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. Uh, Jade, also special thanks to you for uh, for your wonderful job pledge wrapping for us tonight. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. And we're going to check in with Jade one last time before we go. Good night, everybody, and keep those pledges coming, please. Thank you so much, Vicki. Yeah, we've had two pledges during this hour, which I think we can get it to three. So if you are sitting on your hands thinking that it's not your time to call, it is 608-256-2001, extension 1. You can also go online, but I'm sure that our phone answers phone answerers would love to talk to you. Um, WORTFM.org is where you go online. We have loved being here on the air with you for this past hour. And if you loved hearing us, now's the time to say that you love us. (laughs) 608-256-2001. Remember that when you pledge, you can also uh, get some cool stuff. You know, we have the WORT shirts, which wear those around town and everyone knows where you get, get your radio. We also have the cool revolutionary style caps. Um, headphones, WORT headphones. Call and make that pledge. Get a little bit of wart swag. Uh, 608-256-2001, extension 1, and also WORTFM.org. And now's the time to call. We've got about a week left of this pledge drive, and we really want to come out on top, right? Let us let us have the fall drive that, that we've been dreaming of, please. I know it would make some people very happy downstairs in the basement where we keep them. <laughs> Keep listening to the news here on WORT. Keep pledging to the station. Keep the lights on here. Uh, Give give us your money, please. It's really helpful. I I, uh, do a lot of, you know, WORT for free. So if you can help us out by uh, giving us a little bit of money to keep the lights on, the board running, get us a new board. It's looking a little bit uh, old. It's an old board. It could use an upgrade. Uh, help us out. 608-256-2001. Uh, please call. Enjoy the rest of your night. And thanks for supporting WORT.